Hey everyone, Phil Town here and welcome to Invested, the Rule One podcast. I'd like to continue to offer these podcasts sponsor free, you guys. But in order for me to do that, I gotta ask you a favor. But before I get to that, let's get into what this episode's all about. We're gonna discuss the power of compounding interest and the looming threat of inflation. It's very informative and I think you're gonna love it. Now, for the favor. I'd like you to go to investedpodcast.com slash rulers, R-U-L-E-R-S, and sign up for the Rule One Investing Six Principles video series. This thing rocks, and these are the same timeless principles that guys like Warren Buffett have been using for 80 plus years. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here for our Invested Podcast, where we talk about Things like rule number one from Warren Buffett and what the greatest investors do to figure out how to get great returns on investing and practical value, things. Value investing. Yeah, practical talk things about. like value practical investing. Things. And why we would be doing it and what other choices we have would and, be interesting. And how to make this work in our lives. So last time... <laughs> Right. We had we had a bit of a crazy episode last time that blew my head off a little bit, um, in which we discussed the power of inflation. Now, I would like to say for the record, I had heard of inflation before. I'm not a total idiot, but and I expect that everyone's heard of inflation. The amazing part to me, which is still somewhat blowing my head off, is. Um, is how much it eats into savings. I had just never made that connection and I had never heard anybody make that connection before. And uh, and I'm still literally thinking about it every day. I have been telling everyone I know about inflation. <laughs> and it seems like most people say things like, yeah, I knew that, but they didn't. And then I say, but did you know that your savings is literally going away as we speak? And they kind of go like, yeah, they kind of knew that, but not in a really visceral way. And I think when we were talking last time, it came home to me in a visceral way, like, oh my gosh. And I got really whiny about it. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is literally like bleeding me dry just the passage of time. Maybe it's some kind of aging analogy. Like the passage of time is just taking away slowly bit by bit everything I've worked so hard for and there's nothing to look forward to in the end. <laughs> Maybe I was having an existential crisis. I think you've gone I from whiny to melodramatic, but it's still going good well, so Well, it's far somewhere away. on that spectrum I feel like is a reasonable reaction to this information. It's funny, we just, we not funny, we just did an analysis for one of our clients to look at, um, I mean, she's 76 years old and, and has a pretty good, pile of, uh, of available resources, more than most people by a lot. But she's at that age where she doesn't want to have money in the stock market. It scares her right now to be invested in stocks because they could crash. And she's right, they could. And it's, I think, pretty much unlikely. If you had to choose, it's well better than 50-50 uh, odds against you that this market's going anywhere significant in the next bunch of years. Well, and that was exactly my original <laughs> semi-logical point of saving is better than investing because I thought, well, the market goes down, therefore saving is better. 
yeah, and at, at, at 76 years old, the market goes down. It could, I mean, you don't necessarily have 10 or 15 years to recover, you know? Right. So we've been looking at, at um, where to put money for her where she's comfortable um, because she wants to live a lifestyle <clears throat> of about $5,000 a month. And she's comfortable in that lifestyle and that would, and that would be spendable money at 5,000 bucks a month. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what we're showing her in terms of inflation is that if we put the money someplace like, let's say, an annuity that pays her $5,000 a month, if we could get one, which we can't with the amount of money she has, but if we could. What's, um, what's an annuity? An, well, good question. Um, we'll come back to that. Okay. But basically, <laughs> if, if, we put, if we put money away um, that gave her, let's say, $5,000 a month, that in 10 years, so when she's 86, in 10 years, um, we will need to have that making her $6,700 a month. Right. Or she won't be living that $5,000 a month lifestyle. Because of the aforementioned inflation. Because of the horror show of inflation. And it really impacts people in the latter part of their life. And people who are baby boomers should be absolutely... Uh, concerned, I guess, is the the least uh, explosive term I could use. You should be <laughs> concerned about what's going to happen here, um, for all kinds of reasons. But none, the, not the least of which, is it is almost certain that you're going to be looking at a decrease in buying power over the next ten years of about thirty percent in just ten years, and maybe more like thirty three, thirty five percent decrease in buying power. So whatever you're making on your fixed investments has to make up for that um, or you're not going to have enough money to, to, to keep the lifestyle going. Are you saying that's th that 30% decrease is going to happen in this specific next 10 years? Yes, ma'am. Or are you saying that's like an average? Because that seems really high. I know. Doesn't it seem scarily high? Yeah. Um, no, no, that's not an... That, that would be a reasonably low end of average for the last 100 years or so. I mean, we've had periods of time where 10 years was getting chewed up at the rate of, you know, it would have, you would have had to double the amount of money you were making in 10 years in order to have the well, same lifestyle. That's exactly what I was just thinking. Salaries don't go up 30% in 10 years. No, they don't. Um, and that's another really insidious part of inflation is that it really hurts the working people of the country. It hurts blue collar workers. It hurts clerical workers. It hurts people that are on some kind of a salary um, in, in a world where they can replace you with a machine potentially, and you don't have a lot of bargaining power uh, on your salary. And so you're, you're getting paid $45,000 a year. You're getting paid 60000 a year. And you don't have any real, you're not unionized. You don't have bargaining power and they just leave you flat at that rate, 60000 a year, maybe they give you a little bit of an increase. Maybe in 10 years you're making 65000 But you need to be making, um, gosh, what, about 80000 In other words, if you're making 50000 bucks a year and inflation just goes along at normal rates, you need to be making $67,000 a year in 10 years to break even. Mm -hmm. And, of course, what also happens to you is the higher your income goes, the higher the tax bracket you're in because it's progressive. You get alternate tax that you got to pay if you get in higher tax brackets. So the, the more money you make, the, the quicker the government claws away at it. 
Um, and inflation then becomes something that moves people upwards in tax brackets and leaves you with even less spendable money than you've had before. So yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty dangerous, um, in, inflation is. And very tough on working people, very tough on retired people. And as we said last time, um, the Federal Reserve is aggressively trying to get inflation up above 2% because right now their big concern is deflation. They're worried that Chinese workers are, are able to produce hammers at $12 that cost American workers $20 to make. And that's that cheaper hammer um, also means lower wages uh, to people all around the country because they, they have to compete in a worldwide market. So there's this, this pressing down ceiling of a worldwide market that's preventing wages from going up. And as I think, you know, we're in the political season, so we're hearing politicians screaming bloody murder that middle class is being taken advantage of. And it's absolutely true. Uh, like the only people who are making any real money right now are people who are not on salaries. Um, if, if they're in businesses that are good businesses and they own those businesses, um, and they can offshore salaries from U.S. workers to Chinese workers or Vietnamese workers or Indian workers, if they can offshore that, um, they can reduce their costs, they can be more competitive worldwide, and they, the owners, are going to do real well. The workers, yeah. not so much. I mean, and that's hardly anybody, and that's the 1%, right, that we hear about constantly. Yes and no. Uh, if I, if oh, I could just please, uh, please make a point here. Sure, go ahead. That the point. largest owner I of, started, to, I, I uh, added some sort of something that you could possibly make something political about by accident. Well, I'm not going to make anything political. I don't even know what you're talking about. I am going to make a statement about investing here. And that is... That, okay, that is allowed. Please okay. make a statement about investing. <laughs> Thank you. Limit it to investing and do not go beyond the boundaries of investing. Okay, well, I found one of the great ironies of the 99% movement, the 1% thing, you know, you know, burn the one percenters down. Um, it, although I, you know, I, I, I feel like I appreciate a lot of what these guys are talking about because there's a lot of things that people on Wall Street do that are kind of not, uh, you know, not great things, not really super moral things. The irony of that movement is that the largest investors in the stock market are little guys. California Teachers Pension Fund is one yeah. of the largest investors on the planet. I think that's a great point. They're, it's, it's a giant organization that's investing, the pension fund, yep. but it's made up of money from little, I was going to say from little people, which is not accurate, from us, from people. <laughs> from people, from us. And, and, and think about that for a second, because what it means is that when the owner, the business, offshores jobs to China, the owner of the business gets higher dividends, higher profits. Higher profits mean a higher stock price and an appreciation of that asset. And that happens to belong to teachers in California and to firefighters in Michigan and to policemen in Tallahassee. And there's no getting around it. That's the vast majority of money that's in the stock market is little guy money. And they benefit. We, the little people, benefit dramatically from having money invested because if those companies are, are reducing their costs and increasing their profits, we benefit from that. I mean, the dividends we're going to talk about getting someday in retirement, the appreciation that we'd see in the value of a business in retirement is all about those businesses being able to be more competitive worldwide, not less competitive worldwide. Yeah. 
you know. And I'll add to that that considering what we just said about salaries, first of all, not being adequate in their dollar value, and secondly, not going up enough to match inflation. I think what I'm coming to is the idea that I need to get away from dependence on a salary. It's well, not going to keep up with what I need for the future. It's a really, really good point that it's like if you have a job and you can set up another way to generate income that's apart from your job, that's a business that you own, <clears throat> then a lot of the benefits of <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of the benefits of the taxation system will help you in how you're spending your money and, and how much money you have left over. Um, you know, the, the benefits of being a corporation versus an individual. There's a lot of things that you can do for yourself. And we should talk about those sometime because I think yeah, you're should. absolutely right. That That's very, very helpful to you. And probably for people that, let's say you're a school teacher and you're spending, you know, 10 hours a day working, eight hours at school and another two hours at home, there, it would be really good for you to take some of the skill sets you have and build a small business that might uh, teach kids how to do math or how to read um, as a little business on the side uh, to tutor kids that might need help. Something like that. You just be creative and try to think of a place where you could make some extra money um, that isn't controlled by salaries and isn't in a competition with people in India and China and Vietnam and, and soon Africa. Yeah, that's true. That's not that's not at all what I was thinking about. But um, yeah, like starting a side business is always a good idea. Um, I don't have time to start a side business. I don't know if anybody else does. Well, you. <laughs> but what I yeah. have, what I was thinking is, <laughs> because we're talking about investing, maybe I should do some investing, and uh, and and that's kind of my side business, and that's the thing that gets me hopefully without spending as much time as it would take to start an entire other business. Um, that's what gets me some freedom from the salary dependence. See, to me, that makes total sense because I started off when, you know, before you were born, I had everything I owned in a black bag about, you know, I don't know how big it is, but, you know, foot by two feet long and, and I just kind of kept the lid on as long as I possibly could on the expenses so that I had more money to invest. And that ultimately um, made a, a, a huge amount of difference. So if a person <clears throat> is on a salary of, let's say, a combined income of, let's say, $80,000 a year, if you can do, if you can f help yourself from not trying to buy a McMansion, you know, not trying to move up into a nicer house that has more bathrooms, if you can stick with the basics, um, even if it means um, living with your parents a little longer with, you know, bringing the kids to their house and try to have a double income or a triple income together. If you can if you can do that and save some money, if you can avoid the problem I see happening all the time with people who are who are um, struggling to save any money. And yet they had to buy that new car for their kid. So the kid goes to high school and instead of being in a beat up car, they go in a nicer car. I mean, I get it, like, though. Like I you work really it. hard and you want some sort of reward for all the work that you're doing. And you're seeing the, mo the money come in and you're like, all right, I'm just going to I really want my kid to have that car. So I'm just going to do it because it's going to make us all a lot happier. I do think that in some circumstances, money buys happiness. 
and that's something that makes those people happier. Well, so I you get know, it. I, I'm not saying it's the right decision financially, long term, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, should you eat cake now or should you eat cake only on your birthday? Like, yeah, you should probably eat cake only on your birthday, but it's also nice to have some now. So I get why people are doing it. Well, um, my friend it's, David it's Bach. It's tough to deny yourself. My friend David Box, great guy, and, and he got ridiculed in some parts of the financial services industry for encouraging people not to drink that latte, you know? Just have a regular <laughs> cup of coffee or something cheaper. Don't pay yeah. $5 and then put that money away. And every day that $5 saved was $150 a month or $100 a month, whatever it turned out to be. And that became 1200 a year and that became the basis of building up credit. And Dave Ramsey is very, very good about encouraging people to really keep the belt tight. But there's also all these people out there who are feeling like you do that, look, the belt is tight and I want to live now, not always for some point of time in the future. Yeah. And, and here's the awkward thing about that is that I've been all over the world. You've been all over the world. You know what people live like in India. You've seen it. And you know that there are people living what in India would be a middle class life. And it's, it's, it's by all standards, just as happy in that life as our middle class is in their lives. And yet, my God, if this, if this Indian lived like our middle class did, they'd be living upper class. Right? Oh, yeah. I have, uh, I've thought about that a lot. And here's what I think the important thing is regarding happiness and standard of living. It all depends on who you're hanging out with. Oh, I, totally I really agree. think that that is the absolute key. Because like when you're in college and you have no money and none of your friends have any money, it doesn't matter because none of your friends have any money. So everyone's doing the same thing. Nobody's expecting to go to restaurants. Nobody's expecting to drive a nice car anywhere. Nobody's expecting to go shopping as a fun leisure activity because nobody has any money. So it doesn't even like come up. It's not even an issue. And then you jump ahead you get some money, everybody else gets a little bit of money, suddenly it becomes normal to go out to a nice restaurant on Friday night. That's normal. And if you don't want to do that because you're saving money, then that means you don't hang out with your friends who want to do that. Yeah. It's a big lifestyle difference. Yeah. And so for your Indian example, it's all about what's going on around them. And for the U.S., it's all about what's going on around us. What does middle class look like here? Okay, that's where our expectations go. And that's what our friends are doing and what our family is doing. I know, and that's why it's so easy to say, you know, just go drive a drive a clunker for another few years. But to actually do that would require that you had the ego of cast iron. You know, I mean, you somehow, it didn't bother you that people would look down on you because you don't drive the right car or you, you're not able to go to a restaurant. I don't, I don't have the answer, <clears throat> except maybe to move away from that town and go someplace where the value's set <laughs> is not based on those things that cost so much money. But of course, that means you're leaving the job that's paying the, the 80,000 a year. And you yeah, that's this... right. Those jobs exist in expensive locations. Yeah, that's right. It's a tough problem. And I, really I don't is. know, I, I gotta say, I don't know if it's, hopefully it's not so much like, oh, what do people think of me? It's more just like money buys certain experiences and it buys access to certain places. And if you don't have access to those places, you're not going to hang out with the people who do. And uh, Well, then I'm going to jump back because into our inflation discussion and our investing discussion, which are, we're basically saying that 
most people are not going to be able to save a great deal of money toward retirement because they're going to have a life. They want their kids to have a life and they're going to live in expensive cities. And that's just the way it is. And as a result, investing your money becomes vastly more important. If you know that the that the pitch being made by the financial services industry to put your money away in index funds or mutual funds is simply not going to get you there because you're not able to put enough money away. The rest of the world financial industry doesn't. The guys at Morgan Stanley, the guys at J.D. Edwards and, or uh, uh, Edward E. Jones or the guys at Raymond uh, James, they don't have an answer for you. If you can't save enough money to where a 7 or 8% return per year is going to get you to retirement, they can't get you to retirement. So yeah. that's what yeah. we're here to do. We're here to figure out a way for you to get there. And one of the problems is if you don't start on time, if you don't get rolling on this, and you get to be 76 years old, <clears throat> everything we're talking about investing is gonna work, but the fear level is gonna be massive that it won't. And you're not you're gonna be paralyzed. You're not gonna be able to put money in the stock market the way we're encouraging you to think about doing in order to have a lifestyle that you wanna have. You're gonna be stuck between a rock and a hard place. Doesn't compounding, doesn't compounding also have a massive effect on, uh, on where you're at when you're 76 years old? It has a massive effect. You mentioned effect. that last time. Well, it has a massive effect on where you're at by the time you get to be 76 years old. If you start, I mean, look, you start at your age and you've got a lot of years before you retire. You, you, in fact, I'm thinking, you know, if you do the kinds of things we're talking about doing where you start to learn to invest, you probably never retire. You can always do that no matter what. Wherever you are, all <laughs> well, I the suppose way, if you count investing as your job, yeah. I, I think you should count investing as your job and treat it like a job and get really good at it. <clears throat> and so, if you're 76 years old, and um, <clears throat> and you're you're working uh, in an inflationary environment, then the power of compounding is working against you. Every Wait, year, what does what does that mean? That what means is, that let's say that um, inflation is going at 3.6 percent per year. And that means in about, what, 20 years, compounding the effects of inflation at 3.6% per year will double the amount of money it requires to live a lifestyle in current dollars. So if you said, I'm in a $5,000 a month lifestyle and inflation is at 3.6%, the power of compounding that every single year over a 20-year period means that it will cost you $10,000 per year to live that $5,000 lifestyle. And, and that's that's pretty extraordinary, right? When you think that 3.6% per year for 10 years is 36% and 10 more years is 36%. So that's 72% increase in prices if you do straight line uh, increase at 3.6% per year. And yet it's 100% increase in prices. And that difference there of wait, wait, wait. Uh, you're, you're. I'm not even sure what you're talking about. Are you talking about inflation? Yeah. Okay. So inflation compounds. You asked me about compounding. Okay. So I thought we were talking about investment. Well, investment returns com compounding. Investment returns compound to your benefit. Inflation returns. Got inflation it. Costs okay. compound to your detriment. We're back to my nemesis of inflation. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I should explain what it is. I mean, inflation, Please explain what it is. I mean, first off, the mathematics of inflation are actually extraordinarily complex. Uh, I heard that Albert Einstein, I read someplace, Albert Einstein said it was one of the 
one of the least intuitive kinds of math you can do. And <laughs> but he also said that if you don't understand it, you're doomed to be punished by it. And if you do understand it, it can benefit your life. So let's understand what it is. Essentially, if you have an interest an interest rate on your savings account, let's say, of um, let's just do an easy one. Let's say you've got ten percent per year that you have on your on your savings account somehow. Okay. All right. So you have a thousand dollars in your savings account, and it grows at ten percent. So now the next year you have one thousand one hundred, right? And right. and if you have straight just what straight line interest here, then the next year you would also uh, get another hundred dollars on your one thousand, and the next year you'd also get a hundred dollars on your one thousand, and the next but year that's you'd get not another. that's not compounding. But that's not compounding. That's just normal interest. Okay. Now. If you have it invested in such a way that it compounds, what it means is the the year after you made eleven hundred dollars, after your account grew from one thousand to one thousand one hundred, the next year you're making ten percent not only on the original thousand dollars, but also on the one hundred dollars that you got in interest on year one. So okay, you're making yeah, yeah. so an, that's compounding. That's compounding. So. You're going to make another hundred dollars on the thousand dollars of principal you had in there. Then you're going to make another ten dollars on the hundred dollars of interest that you had in there. So the next year you don't get hundred a hundred dollars. The next year you get one hundred and ten dollars. So that gives you one thousand two hundred and ten. And then the next year you're not making just a hundred. You're making ten percent on one thousand two hundred and ten, which is one hundred and twenty-one. And Those that, of us with student loans will be very familiar with this concept, yeah. except in the other direction. Yeah. If you've got 8% on your student why student loan, loans are so horribly demoralizing as you pay every single month and it never seems to go down. It's why credit cards will destroy you. It's why student loans are going to become a national crisis with, with yeah. trillion dollars of student loans. And we've got students out there who can't possibly repay them all. And you can't go bankrupt on a student loan. You can't escape them. It's impossible. Right. And it's also why an IRS bill becomes incredibly crazy. I get this. Melissa and I just got an IRS bill. Apparently, our accountant didn't pay $19 in 2010. <laughs> <laughs> there was, we missed paying $19. And, and since we didn't pay it, they put a penalty on of $100. So our $19 became $119. This is true? This yeah. actually happened? We just got this last week. $19. $19, which we've never been informed about for the last five years. We've never seen a single thing about it, right? Not a word. Stop it. Okay, wait. Then they this penalize This is like this. some horror story that should go on the I'm internet. I'm not making this up. And I would not believe it. I know. They, they penalize this $100 for not paying the $19. Sure, yeah. Okay, which they also never informed us about that we know about. And then now we owe them $119 plus... They started compounding interest at some interest rate. And anyway, they sent us a bill for $246. <laughs> so this is $19 became $246. And $100 of that is penalty. The rest of it is interest on the penalty Gosh. on the 19 And this is compounding against us every year, every year, every year, every year. So you get crushed by it in lots of different ways. Um, certainly, 
the power of compounding on on credit cards is just a nightmare, right? We yeah, people yeah, are at, at, absolutely, and you know and you get the really like super, whatever like twenty percent or whatever it is they oh charge. Oh my gosh, thirty percent I oh think yeah. on some. And you've signed away um, your rights on that. You you basically said, okay, I know you're going to charge me five percent on my credit card, right? But if I miss a payment, just miss one. Oh, right. They bump it up, don't it they? It goes to 30. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then it starts eating you alive. Yeah. Okay. So this compounding thing is horrible. So let, what I was trying to explain earlier about the power of compounding against you in terms of inflation is that at 3.6% inflation in 20 years, you will have to double the amount of money you make to live the same lifestyle you're living today. Just 20 years from now. So if you're if you're 40 years old right now, when you retire 20 years from now, if you were to retire at age 60, and today you're living on a $5,000 a month lifestyle, you will need to have the ability to pay $10,000 a month to live that same exact lifestyle. Yeah, that's okay. oh, Now, crazy. what I was gonna show you was how that happened is really strange. In other words, if it's just 3.6% per year, then in 20 years, that should just be 72%. In other words, it should be $5,000 would become, I don't know, whatever that is, you know, whatever 72% into that. So maybe $8,000. But it doesn't become $8,000, it becomes $10,000. And the reason it becomes $10,000 is because this inflation rate is compounding every year. Oh, okay. It's not straight line. It's yeah. compounding on yeah. the previous year's cost of gasoline and food and cars and rent and all the stuff they don't throw in the inflation index, you know, whatever, <laughs> right. whatever is. Uh, yeah, you said that last time, I think, that gas and food are not considered basic living expenses or something like that. They don't include them in the inflation index. And, and there's a I think you can go to a website. I'm looking it up right now. Just um, let's see what. I'm checking it out. Fake inflation here. I'm going to Google that. I don't know. I'll, I'll tell you what. We'll we'll put something on the on the um, on the next podcast about where you can go to find out where real uh, you know real inflation is if they counted inflation the way they did when Jimmy Carter was president, like back in 1975 or something or 76. So if they count that that way, what would inflation rate have done today? Wait, you mean they calculated that. it differently when Carter was president than they do now? Oh, yeah, right. They've changed it dramatically. Oh, they've changed it. Right. They changed what they put in the basket. So they have a basket of goods, and they see what the price of those goods are over time, and that's your inflation rate. That's the, the uh, cost of living index. And they've decided to take things out of that basket. And they've also decided that um, since computing power is a lot greater today in a Mac uh, book Pro than it was, you know, 10 years ago, that that's actually deflationary and is working to our benefit and that should be credited in the cost of living index. So they played, they play the game differently than did. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying they, they definitely changed the game. And if they played the game the same way they did when Carter was president, uh, people would be making twice as much money in Social Security right now than they no. are. No. Is that true? Yeah. Well, they, I don't know. I think it's true. I read it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> well, then it must be so true. So don't hold us to it, but uh, but you can check it out on your own. I'll call it a lead generator for doing some research <laughs> that, uh, that okay. you might prefer to do. So compounding is this very, very difficult to understand thing, and it either works against you in the case of inflation and credit cards um, and, and consumer debt, or it works in your benefit in the case of investing. And there's no better um, inflation protection than long-term investing in the stock market. That's the single best inflation protection you can get. Better than bonds, better than gold by far, better than anything. And we can go Why? through numbers about that. And the reason is, is because good companies are inflation proof. So for example, Coca-Cola started over 100 years ago, and it has been able to raise its prices with increases in sugar prices, with the increases in cost of trucking and gasoline, with the increases in uh, labor force costs. All of that, all of those increases, have been flowing through the cost of a Coca-Cola bottle um, for the last 100 years. And Coke still mm. is making good profits. Mm -hmm. Walmart, same thing. I mean, there's been a tremendous amount of inflation since 1960s when Sam Walton started Walmart. And Walmart continues to have low, low prices and yet has been able to continue to make money in an inflationary environment. So a really good company, one that we would say has a very good moat, or, or some sort of intrinsic characteristic that protects it against competition, allows that company to increase its prices of its stuff with inflation. So for example, a real simple little company would be something like C's Candy or a chocolate maker, right? Mm -hmm. Those guys don't have uh, much growth in their, it's just the same number of people buy the chocolate every year, it's not a big grower. But every year they increase their prices by about 4%. So it's an investment that just automatically moves with inflation. Exactly. That's so interesting. Yeah, totally. Is that true for non-consumer products companies, though? I mean, I, I get the consumer product thing. That makes a lot of sense. Um, that's easy for me to understand. What about something like that company we were talking about a few episodes ago that... Um, and now I'm going to forget what zinc. They do something with zinc where they um, yeah, these can't guys. remember if they manufacture zinc or if they use its byproducts. Yeah, horse something head like holders. that. Right. These guys take a byproduct of, of steel making and they turn it into zinc and lead and silver. And and um, it's a very good question. Do they do they keep up with inflation? And the answer is most definitely. This is a commodity company, and commodities are almost the definition of inflation. So mm -hmm. when we think about inflation, we think about the price of corn, the price of beef, the price of sugar, the price of, of orange juice. These are all commodities, and zinc prices would be included in there. And uh, one of the reasons that, that a lot of um, hard goods companies like that, non-consumables, um, copper companies, uh, for example, are, uh, iron ore companies are suffering right now um, is because the... Um, the big slowdown in production that's gone around worldwide because of China slowing everything down has vastly lowered the price of these hard goods. And as a result, those companies are having a tough time. And by the way- Because they're competing with companies from other countries? Yeah, they're competing all around the world. And as, as it turns out, there's too much supply and not enough demand, those prices are coming down like a brick, just like is happening in oil prices right now. Oil prices have dropped by 50% from a year ago. And um, those prices are 
um, fabulous for the consumer, right? I mean, we're getting gasoline at under $3. That's great, you know, but the companies that are actually producing that stuff are having some problems right now. And they'll mm. reset their costs and they'll get it They'll get it going again. I mean, oil companies made money at $50 a, a barrel of oil, you know, a few years ago. They'll make money at it again. Um, but and But what I'm saying is that as these commodity prices go down, this is anti-inflationary. So in fact, this is one of the issues that the government's dealing with is that is creating deflation in the economy um, is that oil prices are going down, ore prices are going down, steel prices are going down, zinc prices are going down. So all these prices are going down and the workforces are being laid off who are out there producing that stuff and companies are cutting uh, capital expenditures left and right in this at the as we're bottoming through this cycle right now. And so I think it's pretty likely we're going into a recession. It's pretty likely we're going to see the stock market just flatline or go down. Um, but in the long run, which is where we have to watch for inflation as a retiree, in the long run, those things will come back and they will absolutely go taking off into the future and, and raise the cost of living. So. Man, inflation's a big subject, and um, and we need to talk about it some more. I think there's a lot here, including how do you deal with it. Let's let's get at it the next time about how would you deal with trying to retire if you were absolutely set on not being a stock investor, and you had to <laughs> deal with inflation, recognizing it's likely that the governments will continue to print money until we get inflation. I mean, they're they're going to do that, and so. Um, and we can talk about why next time as well. But let's dive into what are our choices? What are our options and what is the outcome? Because I wanna show you how tough it is at 76 years old when all you have is a million dollars today. All you have All is a you have dollars. is a million dollars today and you're <laughs> in trouble. That's, we wanna talk about that because one of our clients is sitting right in that hot seat and I tell you, man, it's not fun to be 76 years old with only a million dollars, trying to figure out what to do when you're healthy at 76 and it's really likely you're gonna live another 20 years easy. What yeah, and we all, we all hope for that, and right? Then we to be don't. healthy at 76. Let me tell you how serious again, this client is hoping that doesn't happen. That's how serious it is. Well, that's bad. I know, that's serious. So That's serious. On yeah. that happy note. Well, and I'll just add, you know, not just 76-year-olds. Lots of people I know who are roughly my age in their 30s say to me, I just don't trust the stock market. You know, like we've we've gone through, we graduated from college during one recession, and then we had another one. And, and you got another it, one coming. People, and maybe we have another one coming. And, um, and people just want to do something different than that. And so people ask me all the time, like, oh, that's great that you're doing a podcast about stock market investing. Um, I don't want to do that at all. What I want to do is this other thing. How about that? And then I have no answer to give them because I don't know anything about it. So right. I think it would be great for the 76-year-old and for the 35-year-old to go through all these other ways that people invest and, and see what you think about them. I mean, I certainly have my impressions of them, but see see what you what your analysis is. Okay, you're on. Oh, okay. and by the way, let's uh, just throw in a plug real quick. Um, I also, <laughs> we'll tell you about that next time too. I also made a note to myself to say that I did take economics in college 
because I said last time that I didn't. I remembered that I actually did, and clearly it made so little of an impression <laughs> on me that I completely forgot that I sat right in that class. Right there with me teaching you to change a tire. On well, yeah, that note, exactly. time to go All play. Right. See thanks, ya. everybody. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.